Good to see everybody. Sorry I was behind getting things together. And as Murphy goes, you know, sometimes I really do want to believe in karma because it just seems to work sometimes, you know, when you're <laughs> running behind. You're like, well, it's worked last 15 times. Surely it'll work without a glitch. And that's the one time it doesn't. But it's good to see everybody. Um, thank you, Father, for this day, for our church, for uh, your mercy, and for your grace. Now, for your word, Lord, we pray that you would open it to us and speak. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing the uh, parables class, I think this is my last time to do the parables, and then um, I believe Michael Sansbury is up next week, and then Ron Flowers, who's back there. Is Michael in here? Uh, Ron's in the back row, also been team teaching this with me this summer, um, as I'll be in Texas visiting some of my family. Um, We're kind of bouncing around, so um, I've really enjoyed the parables, hearing Ron and hearing Michael and kind of engaging these in in some some new ways for me. Um, The parables, uh, where I think most of us, and when I say that, it's really a way of of you knowing me, because when I say most of us believe, that's really to say, well, Gil believes um, that, you know, the parables, uh, parables, you know, they're easy, they're just kind of Jesus's sort of entrance points where he sort of makes it easy. He says, come on, little sheep, you know, here's the hay, come on, follow along, or something. That's the, you know, the parables should be easy to understand. They just take everyday occurrences where Jesus sort of says, you know, the seed is this, and God is that, and it should be, you know, and it's the farthest thing from the truth. The parables are actually some of the most difficult things to, to wrap our heads around. They're not simple. They defy sort of... Uh, uh, consistent allegorical interpretation. You can't say, well, this means that and that means this, and so the one meaning is this. Um, it's been helpful. It's been good to kind of confront that and open the Word. And as I pray so often, uh, to allow the Word to try to interpret me, to allow the Word, the parables of Jesus, uh, to interpret us rather than vice versa, putting ourselves in a position over the living word of God over the parables and try to, to quote-unquote, make sense of them. Sometimes we lean into them and we step back and just go, what is he talking about? Um, and, uh, and then we fall into a good pattern of interpretation and we say, I need the rest of the scripture to interpret the scripture. I need the rest of the Bible. Some places where I'm, pos- I'm much more sure of what is meant um, say, in, uh, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, straight out of Ephesians 2, to bring that into a parable like today, for instance. We use scripture to interpret itself. That's a, a very tried and true hermeneutic big word. just means you know a, uh, a method of interpretation. So all that's to say the parables have been really uh, enlivening for me. Um, I've enjoyed it. And today's kind of a bread and butter passage. I've really liked kind of thinking about this this week. The uh, uh, title of Sinner Simon and the Parable of Two Debtors. Uh, uh, Simon, a Pharisee, this is not Peter, not Simon who, was, who would become Peter, um, a Pharisee named Simon, invites Jesus into his home uh, where a woman whom Jesus, uh, it seems, almost certainly had already uh, known, or at least the woman had been around and heard Jesus and really engaged his uh, his message, his teaching. Maybe he was a woman that he'd art, he uh, that Jesus had healed or even come to and and somehow uh, forgiven because she was a restored sinner, um, a prostitute, um, as we'll see in the story. And she comes to him, and it's one of the instances where 
uh, a woman comes and and uh, and and wets Jesus's feet with tears and dries his her, his, uh, uh, his feet with her hair. Um, strange as it sounds, you know, a big deal back then. Once you became a uh, a woman, once you started your period, when you were a teenager back then, you were a uh, you became a woman. At that point, you put your hair up. You know, put it in a bun and never came down in public. It always stayed up uh, unless you were with your husband alone. And so that's the significance of having a woman's hair down and wiping his uh, his feet with her hair. It was a very uh, risque, improper, um, uncouth, uh, more than uncouth, went far beyond a social norm. This was the religious norm of, of, of course, the... Uh, uh, the Pharisees, and it would mark her immediately as someone who would be, you know, excluded in any way that you could possibly conceive from anything proper, as judged by by, by the Jews. So she did all that, broke a alabaster jar of perfume, anointed, and he went up and and and, and said the story. We're going to read all that and get to it, and then come to a a, a rather long long for a class a letter from Martin Luther to one of his good friends, Georg Spalatin, and that's kind of where we're headed. Um, so with that, let's uh, let's just dive on in. <clears throat> this is from Luke 7. Uh, uh, set that up. In Luke 6, what happens? Luke describes the Sermon on the Plain, whereas Matthew describes the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which starts with the Beatitudes, and he goes forth into the, you've heard it said, but I tell you this, and all that. Luke gives very similar account, a little bit more truncated, has the Beatitudes as well, has a lot of the same content of the Sermon on the Mount. He probably took the same uh, stuff and said it again somewhere else, and, and Luke recorded it in a different way. And so it starts off with that, and then he goes on and he has a healing, the healing of the centurion's, uh, the, the Roman captain's son. Um, he does a, a, a quick raising of the dead. Ah, that's supposed to be funny. Um, uh, raises the widow, uh, the, the 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 widow from Nain, his son, her son, and then comes up and asks uh, when John the Baptist's disciples approach Jesus and says, "Are you the one? Are you the one?" It's very sort of Matrix-like, you know. Are you the one, um, or should we look for another? And then Jesus kind of plays with them for a little while and does a great interplay, and then they leave. And Jesus looks around and realizes, of course, the Pharisees. It's almost always the Pharisees. The Pharisees, remember, good people. Peep the Pharisees. That's who I want my daughters to marry. They they take, they're good. They go to church. They take what is good and right. And they say, well, if if two is good, I'll do three. If six is good, let's do twelve. Let's just build a hedge. Let's just go ahead and take it. They they worked hard. You know, if the expectation is you work from nine to five. They were sort of 8:30 to 6. You know, I mean, they're just they're, they're they were good, and it's important to remember that the Pharisees are easy to unload on, uh, but but they're the sort of people that we would want to join the Advent. They're the sort of people you want as your neighbors. They're the sort of people that you want your daughters to marry. But Jesus, John's disciples come up. Are you the one? And Jesus goes back and forth to them, and they leave. And the Pharisees are looking around, going. And Jesus looks and tells them the story and says, "Look, I know what you're saying." And then Jesus goes in and says, I know the gossip about me. This is one of the great parts of Jesus in Luke 6. I know that, you you know, what, what do people say about me? You know, oh, that's the friend of sinners. That's the glutton and the drunkard. And so Jesus, I mean, think about it. He's sitting there calling out the Pharisees. I know what you're saying behind my back, that he drinks, you know, a little bit of that. Uh, he's always going to parties. He hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes, the people that are unclean. Uh, you know, you go to the places that we don't go because we're good people. 
We're the people that you want in church, remember? But Jesus, you're not doing that. And so Jesus just sort of lays it all out there. The friend of sinners and the uh, the glutton, the drunkard. Um, and then as if to illustrate, he goes right into this, the friend of sinners, because then he allows this sinner, um, a notorious woman of the, of the night, of the city, to come to let down her hair and to do some very improper things to him. So here's the text. Okay, that make sure I was right. Um, let me get into my copy. So one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into this. His name is Simon, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now at the the Last Supper here anywhere else. Um, Strange as it sounds, I've always read this, and it's still, it's kind of like, really? That's how they did that? You know, they, uh, uh, sort of like in, you know, I see Japanese um, movies, not that often, um, or, uh, you know, Japanese pictures or whatever, where you kind of go in and you take your shoes off and you sit on the ground on a pillow or something like that. I hate that because I have bad knees, and I'm like, oh, this is the worst thing in the world. You can have any. But that's what they did. They kind of sat there, and they reclined. They'd lean on an elbow and all that, and... And the meals were just, they were, they were much longer affairs, you know. I want to sit down, you know, eat. I'm efficient, you know. I want to get it done. But that's not it. So that's part of it. So they recline at the table where their heads are all going towards the table and their feet are going out. And so that's, you know, the mental image just so as she comes and wets, his, wets uh, uh, Jesus' feet with her hair. You can imagine it's easier because they're, they're sort of out like a hub, spokes going out from a, from a hub around the table. So one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, so in his head, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was, is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, uh, uh, and Jesus answering said to him, so the man thought it inside, and this is the, sort of the weird thing that Jesus does, not infrequently in fact, he sort of realizes that somebody's thinking something, and he enters the conversation. <laughs> And so Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And I can imagine Simon saying, oh, say it, teacher. <laughs> you know, what's going on? So, um, so what's going on here? Uh, and then we'll read the rest, read the parable part. Uh, Jesus reclining at the table, all that I just said, and the woman comes in, uh, the ointment, the anointing. You can definitely hear some prefigurement here of, of death language. Uh, you anoint a body. You prepare it for burial. There's that element of what's going on. But not only that, because you also anointed as a, as a, uh, uh, a sign of cleansing in preparation for worship. Um, and so these, 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 these little jars of, uh, of, uh, of oil, um, a lot of Jewish women would have them in preparation, for, uh, in preparation for preparation to be ready to prepare yourself or one's family for for, uh, for worship, you know, to anoint one's head with oil. Um, and so she had all that, but it's also the, 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 the prefigurement of getting ready for, for, uh, for Christ's ultimate sacrifice, his death. And so all that's sort of pregnant in this. And then the Pharisee Simon, 
who had invited him, and he probably invited him in there most likely to kind of set him up, um, not for uh, not for hospitality, but to to uh, to probably kind of catch him. We don't know that for sure. He could be more of a Nicodemus sort. Um, Nicodemus, also a member of the Sanhedrin, probably a Pharisee. Uh, seemed to be a genuine seeker. That's the whole John 3.16 context. That's all said to, to Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, one of the members of the Sanhedrin. Um, it could be some of that, but most likely he was trying to set him up, Simon, this, this Pharisee. And he, and, he, and he reverts to the way he was. If this were a prophet, he would know who this was, uh, this woman who was touching him, for she is a sinner, a woman of the night. And Jesus answering him, Simon, I have something to say. He says, well, say it, teacher. And so he tells this story. A certain moneylender has two debtors. <clears throat> One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii, if I remember right, is uh, it's like a day's wage. So 500 denarii, um, you know, year and a half worth of, uh, of wages. And the other 50, you know, almost two months worth of wages. And they could not pay. Uh, when they could not pay the moneylender, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Relatively straightforward answer. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, so here's the woman, you know, still at his feet, probably crying and weeping and with her hair down and everything improper and all that stuff. And Jesus, both arresting but compassionate at the same time, totally objectifies her, absolutely uses her as a teaching aid, just turns to her. Do you see her? Do you see what she's doing? Look, she's four and a half feet from my mouth down there at my feet, washing my feet. Uh, do you see this woman? Uh, I entered your house, and she gave me no water. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Uh, you gave me no kiss, but from, that time, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And so Jesus is obviously just making a strong comparison back and forth. Do you see what she's doing? But you're doing this. Do you see what she's doing? And you're doing this. Do you see what she's doing? And you're doing this. So he's setting up a very black and white uh, way, you know, ready to pull his feet out, pull the rug out from under his feet. Therefore, Jesus concludes down here in verse 47, I tell you, so there's this echo of, of Matthew 5 or earlier in the Sermon on the Plains, you have heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus is very strongly, we're about to read this, pretty thunderous clap here of divinity, in fact, um, of Jesus saying, I am, I am the one. You know, John's disciples, are you the one or should we look to another? This is Jesus saying, I'm he. Therefore, I tell you, so the emphasis on the I, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, no ambiguity. Jesus is not sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. Oh, she's not so bad. You know, oh, isn't she sweet? You know, I'll just kind of count a little bit of faith and sort of blow it up or whatever. Call a spade a spade, looking straight at it. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, four and a half feet away, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Who forgives sins? God alone. Jesus standing in the place of God. Um, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Absolutely, unequivocally, would have been understood as blasphemy. Because who can forgive sins, much less sins against God? The sin isn't against anybody but God. There is no injury to any party except the vertical dynamic. The sin is only against God. 
what right would Jesus, if he were only a man, have to forgive a sin against God? It's not a sin against, you know, he didn't, she didn't, like, you know, cause my cow to fall into a ditch or something like that, so now I've got to, you know, get blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, calling it straight out, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. The indicative. Um, at this point in the parable, you could... Um, uh, think that now Jesus is rewarding her contrition, her faith, her her gamble, her risk, um, much more likely because of verse 50, which we're going to read in a minute. Jesus knew her already, or at least she knew Jesus already, because she has come in a broken and restored sinner. Here's her love. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. As evidence of her forgiveness... Look what she's not stopped doing. All the stuff that you haven't even thought of yet, she can't not not do it. Evidence, fruit from a root of, uh, of the forgiveness. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The implication here is clear. Simon, Simon, you have no love. You have no love because you, have been, you haven't been forgiven. You haven't been forgiven because you think you need no forgiveness. Um, and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this? Because they would realize the blasphemy. Um, who is this? Uh, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Finally, for the first time, he acknowledges the woman. He turns to the woman, four and a half feet away, turns to the woman and says, Your faith, has saved you. Not your tears, not your anointing, not your contrition, not your devout kneeling. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Or even more specifically, go into peace. This sort of motion sense of, uh, of where he's going. So that's the parable. I'm going to unpack it again, go back through it and put a little bit of color onto it and move towards uh, uh, this letter from Luther, a very compassionate letter. Um, but what comments come up so far? What a uh, as we engage the uh, the text here in the first half of the class, what what what, what comes up? Can you remind me what are the what was the custom? Um, he says you haven't you gave me no kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Hospitality. Um, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, some, let me look around the room. Some of y'all have been to Bolivia with me, for instance, or been traveling in these places uh, where people still wear sandals and mostly in agrarian culture. Feet get really gross, and that's just kind of where it goes. Um, and so it was considered um, hospitable, um, even lavish, if someone would uh, waste water or oil or anything else, which is really pretty hard to get. On, on, on cleaning the feet, for instance, because the feet are only going to get dirty again, and they're really gross. And so that would be, for the wealthy, that would be something that a servant would do. Would, when you come into the house, you would take off your sandals, because they were really you know, thick and calloused, and just, I mean, I don't want to go too far, but just yucky. Uh, and you would clean them. And so as a sign of hospitality, lavish hospitality for those who could afford it. It's what you would do at sort of Easter and Christmas and all that, but every other time you really wouldn't. Sort of bringing out the china, basically. Uh, uh, wash the feet. And so, uh, not a, and she did it. 
Um, usually it'd be something that you would assign to somebody else, but she did it. And then the anointing with the head, that'd be the preparation of preparation, of preparing for worship, preparing for uh, cleanliness, um, the oil, since they didn't wash their hair, so to speak, they would you know, just kind of oil their hair, and that's how it would be clean their hair. Um, uh, just just kind of all that. Um, again, uh, people were pretty dirty, pretty gross, pretty smelly. And it was a way of making it less dirty, less smelly. It was a sign of lavish hospitality. So she was being very hospitable in doing all these different things. And Simon, in his short-sightedness, was doing none of these things. Deeper, the preparation for death. That's really the under, that's the basso continuo in all of these parables, is that really preparing the body for burial. Um, well, going back through, this woman being a woman of the city, the, the key thing uh, that seems to be going on here is that she knew who she was. She, she had no fear in knowing either who she was, her sins, as Jesus knew her sins. Look at this woman. Her sins, though many. <laughs> and the woman said, yes, my sins, and they were many. Hello, pleased to meet you. My name is Legion. I've got so many sins, so many demons, so much baggage, so many things which should keep me from God, from you, from everybody else. That's me. The woman knows all that. Um, she knew her guilt, she knew her sinfulness, she knew her unacceptability, which made it all the sweeter when she knew the grace of Jesus, when she knew the grace of her Savior. And that's what Jesus is getting at. When Simon, you are this, she is that. You have heard it said thus and such, but I tell you this. Uh, uh, Simon doesn't know reality, doesn't know how things actually are, which Jesus then lays into him. Simon those that love little, those that are forgiven little, love little. You're not loving because you don't know you don't know the way things actually are. You don't see yourself in the world and other people as they actually are. And this is where I kind of go off. Um, you probably know some people like this. Um, people that uh, okay, I'm going to overstate this just a hair. Who are some of the worst people to be around? People that have just kicked a habit. <laughs> um, if somebody last week stopped smoking, or they went on a gluten-free diet, or you know what, uh, they bought a Prius, um, <laughs> or uh, you know they were they couldn't sleep, so they were watching an infomercial, and they bought that vacuum bag, you know, because it saves space and there's not as many allergens or whatever. Um, these people are awful to be around. Why? Because now <laughs> I'm improved. I mean, look at me. I mean, I'm great. I'm not smoking. I'm driving a Prius. I mean, you should do this too. That's the, always the implication is you got to come over here and get on my team because now I know the deal. I know what's going on. Um, I've got this. These people are awful to be around. And that's a little bit of Simon. That's a silly example. But that's Simon. It's, he's not seeing things as they actually are. He believes, actually, that he has improved his lot in life, that his actions and his behaviors, his thoughts, his uh, who he is, he's got some control over, 
and that he's he's doing okay. He's doing okay. And Jesus saying, you don't get it. Those that are forgiven little love little. And if it's love that makes the world go round, you're off the merry-go-wagon. The merry-go-wagon? Is that right? <laughs> merry-go-round. And then what's the wagon? Wait. Off the wagon. Off the, hey, I don't know what to <laughs> I'm off the wagon. Um, at some level, um, Simon, just like the, the, uh, the gluten-free person, um, they've reduced their sin quotient. Their sin meter has gone down a few ticks because they've begun to take control of their life, making better choices, not sinning as much. And these people are intolerable. They're an awful bore. You're like, get me away from this person as soon as possible and just go hang out with some good old-fashioned sinners. You know, people that just, they get it, you know. They, they're okay. They have nothing for which to be given, and so they love little. Um, consider the implications of this idea. To not see things as they actually are, to be Simon. Jesus is saying, is a lonely, isolating, uh, disconnected experience. Jesus has a lot of compassion, actually, for Simon. We looked at that a couple of parables ago. I can't remember which one it was. But Jesus, looking at the Pharisee, loved him. Never something to forget. Because I am, I'm obviously, like I said at the beginning, uh, when I say people like this, it's really me. I am a great Pharisee in, um, in recovery. Maybe. Um, uh, they that are forgiven little, love little. There's no forgiveness without sin. So here's the bridge over to, uh, to this great letter from, from Luther. Um, we're back into law gospel territory. If you're following along and want to know sort of theological categories, and, and that's not new to a lot of y'all who know me, um, the law is needed to, um, the law is needed to be preached. Law is needed to be offered to whom? Not to people who are bruised, who are broken, who are needy, who are uh, uh, are shot through with holes. Not to those who, who who are already on their knees because life has dealt them the blow. Which is why I'm not often heavy on the law. I really don't think, although I believe in the law. The law is good, right, and holy. Most of us don't need it because the law is already in us. We're born that way. Um, a little bit of legal. Uh, uh, we we. The law is written on men's hearts. Um, I'm going to do Romans again, starting in Rally Day, and that's what we're going to talk about the first week, Romans 1, 2, and 3. Um, we're born knowing the law. So the law really just needs a little bit of air to sort of fan up for most of us and realize who we are, but not all. Some people are secure in their self-improvement, the gluten-free diet person or the Prius driver, whoever else, and I know I'm offending some. Um, uh, and the law needs to be given. The law needs to come down and, uh, and clarify exactly the way things are. That's the purpose of God's law. That's the purpose of the law as given in all of its different forms in the scriptures. And the gospel is then preached to those who are broken, who are bruised, who are needy. Clear division of law and gospel here in this parable um, between Simon and this woman. So, set up this... Uh, uh, letter. And I made some copies just because I thought some of y'all may want to take this home. Um, not sure how many I made. Um, so if you're here with somebody, maybe just take one and then uh, uh, and then pass the rest around. Luther had a good friend named Georg or George uh, Spallatin. 
Um, they were close friends for the entire of the Reformation. They died within two years of each other. Um, in that movie several years ago with Joseph Fiennes, is that how you say his name? Fiennes? Fiennes. Um, called Luther several years ago. Um, uh, he's in it. I mean, it was, just, it, was, it was one of Luther's real sort of confidants and counselors throughout the entirety of the Reformation. Uh, in 1544, which I think was about a year before Spalatin died and, and, uh, and only two years before Luther died, Spalatin fell into a deep depression. I mean, just a good old-fashioned 21st century depression, just the sort of the funk that we get into. It's been around for a long, long time. Um, and the reason he did, there was a very specific context. He, Spalatin was also a pastor. Excuse me, I got a cold. Um... Uh, Spalatin was also a pastor, and he somebody came to him and said, "Can I do this? Um, my wife has died, and and I don't know what quite the context. Anyway, his wife died, and he ended up marrying his stepmother. Uh, and Spalatin said, "I think that's okay to do." And he became very depressed later because other people challenged him. Other pastors did, and he came to see in First Corinthians five and six that that was actually sort of almost very nearly uh, prohibited. Specifically, he came to think, I did a wrong thing, is what Spalatin thought. And he went into this deep funk uh, and didn't come out. I think I don't think he came out ever, even after this, this letter from, from, from Luther. I think he actually sort of died in the midst of his depression. But this was the, uh, the context of this letter from Luther to, uh, to Spalatin. Um, Spalatin refused to be comforted, and Luther then writes him a letter. Um, think of... Uh, the woman here, whose sins were many, Jesus looks right at it, says, you know, four and a half feet away. Jesus had no illusions of who this woman was or wasn't, knew exactly what he was dealing with, um, just as Luther knew exactly what was going on in Spalatin, or so it seems. Uh, and he, he gives this great word uh, that says, my dear friend Spalatin, See your sin. Recognize the way things actually are, because that's actually good news. Um, I talk about this movie a lot. The Mission. Have you all seen that? So, this is really a scene I usually give. Robert De Niro is an ex-slave trader, and one of the scenes I remember so clearly is after he killed his brother, and he's confronted by Jeremy Irons, a strong antagonist, protagonist sort of type. Uh, De Niro, in this great way, says, "For me, there is no penance." Um, and then the whole movie kind of sets up away from that line. Can he find forgiveness? Can he find freedom um, within, you know, a little bit of the penitential work of the so, what, 16th, 17th century Catholic movement? But nonetheless, um, he does. So same idea. Can there be uh, a way out? Um, so here's this letter. Um, in typical ironic faction, fas- fashion, uh, uh, Luther highlights a form of, our, uh, of really our shallow narcissism. In a gently, gentle way, he's chiding Spalatin, and this really resonates with me. So, Luther, it is bad enough to know that you made a mistake in this matter. Now, do not let this sin, do not let your sin stick in your mind, but get rid of it. Quit your despondency, which is far, which is a far greater sin. Listen to the blessed consolation which the Lord offers you by the prophet Ezekiel, who says in chapter 33:11, "As I live, saith the Lord God." I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And here's some of the, the gentle irony. Do you imagine that only in your case the Lord's hand is shortened? Or has he in your case alone 
forgotten to be gracious and shut up his tender mercies, or that you are the first man to aggravate his sin so awfully that henceforth there is no longer a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And so here's Luther saying, are you putting yourself on such a pedestal that you thought actually that you were above reproach, that you couldn't sin, that the problem of being human somehow skipped over you in your late life and that you were now going to be immune to this? And Luther's pulling back, is the Lord's hand so short that he can't save you now, that he can't touch this? He's chiding you and me to come back to, this is the way things are. And this is the way things are going to be until I come back, Christ speaking, uh, or until you die and come see me. Um, and then Luther continues, It seems to me, my dear Spalatin, that you still have but a limit. this was a good friend, that you still have but a limited experience in battling against sin and evil conscience, the law, and the terrors of death. Or Satan has removed from your vision and memory every consolation which you have read in the scriptures. In the days when you were not afflicted, you were well fortified, and you knew very well what the office of Christ, uh, office and benefits of Christ are. In other words, when things were going well, you know, living off the fat of the land, um, uh, practical atheism. You know, of course, you know, you, you got complacent. We, we, we got, we, you started to think, I got this. This world is all there is, ism, and I'm doing pretty well. Um, to be sure, the devil has now plucked from your heart all the beautiful Christian sermons concerning the grace and mercy of God in Christ by which you used to teach, admonish, and comfort others with a cheerful spirit and great buoyant courage. Or, must, or it must surely be that heretofore you have been only a trifling sinner, conscious only of paltry and insignificant faults and frailties. So he's coming in this, 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 this effective way to his good friend, uh, Surely, my dear friend, you are like the, the, the man whom James describes, that as soon as he walks away from a mirror, he forget what he looks like. Are you ever in a room? I've, always, I've wanted to look, work this little illustration in for a while. I was watching our dog not too long. You, you got a dog, and it like runs into the room, and it looks around, and it's like, why did I come in here? Yeah, that's us. You know, He forgets exactly. I mean, what, what am, why did I come in here? It seems so important, but then as soon as he's in... He forgets why he's there. James says we are like men who look in a mirror, and as soon as we walk away from the mirror, we forget what we look like. As soon as things start going well, we forget who we are, that I'm a very great sinner in need of a very great Savior. Of course, my dear Spilotin, why it's so easy to forget it, and haven't you done this? Or, the other hand, or all this while you've uh, been only a trifling sinner, uh, conscious only of paltry and insignificant faults and frailties. I find Luther so contemporary, so accessible. That's the word. Um, so here's the sort of money quote. This is the one you'll you'll, you'll hear sometimes. Therefore, my f I actually know somebody who's on his phone. He's got his case like on the back. This is what he has on it. It's pretty cool. Therefore, my faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling to us, as though, he could, uh, as though he could be our helper only when we wanted to be rid of imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no, that would not be good for us. 
He must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and inequities, yea, from the very greatest and most shocking sins, to be brief from all sins added together in grand total. Catch what he says in the middle, which is a swat line. No, that would not be good for us. Good intentions are it's like, don't worry. I mean, you, man, you wouldn't believe who I saw before I saw you and what they did. I mean, what you got is nothing. You know, there's none of that. You know, it would not be good for us if you came to us and tried to make relative my transgressions and say, you're not, you're not, you're not such a bad guy. Don't worry about it. Christ deals with real sin, and we are real sinners. And so he continues and, and, and finishes up. Dr. Stalpitz, that was Luther's mentor as he sort of came into the Reformation. Um, um, Dr. Stalpitz comforted me on a certain occasion when I was a patient in the same hospital and suffering the same affliction as you by addressing me thus, Aha, you want to be a painted sinner and accordingly expect to have Christ have in Christ a painted Savior, a painted, kind of like a made-up, you know, almost like a, a, a clown's face or something like that, like, like not real, you know, a fake, uh, a fake sinner and a fake Savior. You will have to get used to this belief that Christ is a real Savior and you are a real sinner, for God is neither jesting nor dealing in imaginary affairs, but he was greatly and most assuredly in earnest when he sent his own Son into the world and sacrificed him for our sake etc. John 8.32, John 3.16, etc. So, finishing this up, um, this, this has to be where John Newton, late in his life, and he was suffering from dementia, John Newton, the great um, uh, Anglican, in fact, um, uh, clergyman and the author of Amazing Grace and several others converted from slave trading into Christianity, helped abolish the slave trade, etc., etc., etc. End of his life, suffering from dementia, had the clarity of mind, last recorded words of John Newton, um, my mind is failing, but I know this. I am a very great sinner, and Christ is a very great Savior. Had to know, had to know Luther here in his compassionate uh, letter to Spilatin. Um The gospel, uh, where does Christ abide? Christ abides in my brokenness, in my weakness, in my sin, so that the exchange happens. The same one that Frank referred to in his sermon today, that Christ, though he was rich, made himself poor, so that me, in my poverty, might become very rich towards God. Or even more striking, as the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that I might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ what he was not, my sin, which are many, uh, and made me what I most certainly was not, his righteousness. That's very good news. Um, so I'll just stop there. Bread and butter, great meat and potatoes stuff here in this uh, parable of the two debtors. Um, any comments or thoughts? Have a minute or two. I've got a question that I don't think is real important. Uh, well, by all means, Charles. I think if, if, if it were all that important, we'd, we'd have the answer in the text, but it's not there. Uh, do you think Simon got it? Yeah. Do, you, do you think he probably understood what Jesus was telling him? Because a lot of times people don't. Right. Know, the rich young ruler understood it, but couldn't accept it and turned away sad. What, I wonder what happened to this. Yeah, I have no idea. You're absolutely right. Um, he might have. He might have came to him later. Um, who knows? 
Got his name in the Bible. So. Um, yeah, I could say more, but I think the best answer is I have no idea. But God does, and that's enough. Here's another unimportant question. All right. Um, lots of times, or sometimes you hear people say that this was really Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. The church tradition, I, I read a lot for this too, and it was assigned, you know, it was conjectured that maybe this was Mary Magdalene. Um, uh, early on, there's no no reason to think that it is. There's really not a lot of reason to think that it's not. Um, I'm not sure that Mary Magdalene was a, a prostitute or not. She's referred to as having seven demons at one point, but it's from this tagging into some other things that makes the connection that Mary Magdalene, who was around at the resurrection, uh, was a former prostitute. We, we, I think my two cent. Actually, it's a cent. And a, it's not even not even a cent and a half. My shilling is. Uh, it could go either way, and it wouldn't change anything. Um, who knows? But you just see Jesus hanging around with a lot of you know, sinful women and men. Yeah, scalawags, women with their hair down, and yeah. tax collectors. <laughs> so. I expect to see some buns next week. (laughs) Let me pray. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your law, and for your gospel. Um, Speak to us where we are. Uh, Deliver us, Lord, what we need um, to be broken in our illusions of self-security, like Simon, uh, and to be... uh, chided like uh, your servant Spalatin or to be restored like your daughter, uh, uh, this woman in the parable, in in the story. Uh, Speak to us and come to us and be for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.